Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Kingdom Come, based out of our study on the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. For more information about this sermon and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 4 today. My wife lost my cell phone, y'all, because that's what wives are for. They move your stuff and they lose your stuff. For some reason, God designed them to do so. Ooh. She says she put it in my pocket. She says she put it in my pocket, but didn't tell me she was putting it in my pocket. Yeah, we'll see about that. We will see. Say, <laughs> so take your marriage counsel somewhere else. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. I want to read to you a couple passages of Scripture as I try to paint a picture um, of the way that I think the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be viewed, in particular the Beatitudes. Uh, So let me read to you a couple passages of Scripture. This is from Amos chapter 5. This is a passage that um, Dr. King made so famous during the Civil Rights Movement. Um, This is what Amos, um, he's prophesying on the Lord's behalf. He says, I hate... I despise your feast. This is chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 through 7. Is not this the fast that I choose, says the Lord, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless, the poor, into your house, and when you see the naked, to cover him? As I've studied the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, and I've looked afresh at the life of Christ, I've come to this conclusion that Jesus in his emphasis on the weightier matters do you remember when he rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 he gives them seven woes and oftentimes scholars lay down these woes next to these beatitudes and they say that they're interrelated that they're meant to reflect the opposite of one another but this is one of the woes from Matthew 23 23 he says woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you tithe mint and dill and come in and have, ne- but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Here Jesus says that the Pharisees neglect the heavier matters. And I've come to realize as I've studied that Jesus in every way is embodying the heart of the prophets. And so when Amos says um, that I'm not delighted in your feast, I'm not delighted in your fasting because you've neglected the poor and because you've um, allowed oppression to continue. And then when Isaiah says that... um, he says, this is, what is, what's the fast that, that I have asked for? I've asked that you would loose the, the bonded. I've asked that you would feed the hungry, bring the hungry into your house. This is the fast that I require of you. So the prophets in every way, as I've come to understand, and I'm, and 
And you guys know I'm growing in my own theology and understanding. But what I've come to see is that the prophets intend to cause Israel to understand the heart of the Father God. That, that the prophets are constantly frustrated because Israel fulfills the outward nature of the law. But they haven't stopped to ask the questions of who is this God that we intend to serve? And why does this God set Israel free from Egypt? Why does he set them free from slavery and oppression and bondage? Because this God is a God of love and he is the father of all creation. And in his father-like nature, he is greatly frustrated with oppression. He's frustrated with outward religion that's not inwardly pure. And so Amos is beating this idea. Isaiah beats this idea. There's this one prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 7 that I love where Jeremiah says, um, gather your feast and gather your fattened calves and eat them yourselves. Because essentially God's saying, I don't want anything to do with it because this is not what I have required of you. You have not stopped the question, who am I? And what I've come to realize is that when Jesus steps into his ministry and he steps into these Beatitudes and this Sermon on the Mount, and when he says stuff like, you've heard that it said not to commit adultery, but I say to you, don't look at a woman with lustful intent. Because if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed the act. What he's saying is that the God of the text was not saying don't commit adultery just to create a little box rule. The God of the text was saying don't commit adultery because the God of the text wanted you to really love and care for your wives. What he's saying when he says that um, not to commit murder, but I say to you, if you harbor hatred in your heart against your brother, you've already committed the act. What he's saying is that the God of the commandment is is actually concerned with your heart and whether or not you walk in love and kindness toward your heart. And so Jesus fulfills, he carries on the nature of the prophets in in, in rebuking the religious for being outwardly religious and not inwardly pure. And so Jesus' statements are not, they're not contradictory with the Old Testament ethic. They're a fulfillment of the Old Testament ethic because he picks up the mantle of Jeremiah. He picks up the mantle of Isaiah and of Amos and he says, no, you, you do outwardly look religious, but inwardly he tells the Pharisees, remember, he said that you're whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you're clean, but inwardly, you're rotten, stinking, filled with decay. And that, that, as I've come to read and study, that's the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the proclamation that Jesus is, he's, is, is fulfilling. He, he is grabbing the heart of this God and conveying the heart of this God. And remember John in chapter 1 says that no one has seen the Father, but this Jesus has made him known. That Greek, the Greek literally says that Jesus exegetes the Father. That means that he expository sermons, the heart of God. And then when you see Jesus, you see the perfect heart of the Father. So in the Sermon on the Mount, we are catching the fulfillment of God's frustration towards outward religion and inward decay. No, God says inwardly be pure and work that thing out into your outward life. And so Herschel Hobbes, who is a... um, he, I think he passed in 94, was a Southern Baptist um, leader. He said this. He said that the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, these are the constitution of the kingdom. This is a proclamation of the essence of this new coming kingdom. This is a proclamation of the... Um, The essence of the kingdom, the character of the people, and the priorities of this new kingdom's government. And so he said we're working to grasp who we are in this new kingdom. What is this new kingdom like that's coming? And so again, I I wanted to remind you that this... Let me get ahead of myself and say this. That 
locate the Sermon on the Mount in its local format. He, he, again, it's, it's, the Beatitudes are given in chapter five, chapter four, the previous chapter. Jesus is in his wilderness temptation. He is defeating the enemy by proclaiming the word of God. It's truth. Remember the enemy tries to twist the word and he proclaims it's truth. But then in the close of chapter four, do you remember what Jesus is doing? He's casting out devils. He's healing the sick. He's proclaiming liberty to the captive. And so Jesus in every way is displaying and applying the power of this new kingdom, which will overthrow um, chapter four, will overthrow the works of the enemy. Let's pray and we'll, we'll get rolling here. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your God-breathed scripture that pierces our hearts. Pierce us, we pray this morning. Cut us, we pray this morning, Lord. If there are areas in my life, if there are areas in any life in this room that dishonor you, cut us, we pray this morning. We put our hearts on the operating table and say, have your way, Jesus. Do what only you can do. In your name we pray, amen. As I thought this week, I thought about G.K. Chesterton, who some say is the most significant author, thinker of the 20th century. G.K., have you ever seen pictures of G.K. Chesterton? He was like 6'4", 300 pounds, always had a cigar in his mouth. He um, he wrote a series called Father Brown, which Haley and I love, Netflix I used to have a series um, of Father Brown, and, and, and Chesterton was super interesting. If we talk about C.S. Lewis a lot, and C.S. Lewis being the, his interesting relationship with Tolkien, which kind of led to his um, salvation. Lewis was an atheist, as he taught at um, Cambridge. Um, but Lewis was reading was reading Chesterton. It was maybe Tolkien's friendship that led C.S. Lewis into Christianity, but it was the intellect of G.K. Chesterton which challenged uh, Lewis for his, while Lewis, and Lewis talks about this in, um, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, while C.S. Lewis was an atheist, he would read Chesterton's um, book, specifically a book called The Everlasting Man, and Chesterton is just witty as like all get out. He's When you read Chesterton, and you should at some point in your life grab a Chesterton book and just read through it, you will feel so stupid, because as he proclaims simple truth, you're like, how in the, I am an idiot. How in the world did I not get this? And um, Chesterton's just this incredibly brilliant, witty, just chews people up and spits them out for the entire, for his entire life. He died in the 30s intellectually. He's just brilliant. Um, and, but there's a story that goes around of Chesterton, and it, and it, it seems to be true, um, but we don't have a, we don't have perfect historical support. But we at Christian Renewal Church don't believe in historical accuracy. We believe in good stories. So, um, so the story goes like this. It said, G.K. Chesterton is asked by a news reporter for the London Times, this is sometime in the First Great War, um, to respond in an article to the question, what is wrong with the world today? So they asked G.K. Chesterton, that the story goes that it was the London Times, asked G.K. Chesterton, write us an article and tell us what is wrong with the world today. Now, G.K. Chesterton is a, a philosopher. He would, you would think, would just have heyday on this question. But this is what um, the, sto- the story goes. This is how G.K. Chesterton responded. This was his article that he submitted to the, to the London Times. He responds, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. And again, like his, his like wit and you're kind of annoyed with him, like his like cleverness. And so some, some say, we don't know if that story is true, but we do have a quote of Chesterton saying this. Um, when someone asked him, what's wrong with the world? And he wrote a book 
answering this question later, but someone asked him that. And he said, in one sense and in that, the internal sense, the thing is really plain. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is or should be, I am wrong. And until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. Until a man can answer, I am wrong, his idealism is only a hobby. So our text today comes from Matthew chapter 4. We're just doing one line, and this is what it says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This week, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right away, just continuing the thought of where we are, of Jesus, this being the constitution of the new kingdom, this being a proclamation of the essence of what this kingdom will be like. Right away, we understand that Jesus doesn't simply mean blessed are those who mourn when they have a loved one who passed. We, we understand that Jesus is communicating a mourning for personal sin, yes, um, but, for instance, scholar Craig Blomberg says that this mourning includes grief caused both by personal sin and the loss and social evil and oppression. That this mourning is, yes, uh, I'm mourning with Chesterton that we do live a broken, fallen world. And the first thing that's wrong in the world from the Christian worldview has to be me. So in a sense, I do mourn my own personal sin. But in another sense, I am mourning original sin. I am mourning the fact that we have left Eden and we have entered into some kind of wilderness path. I'm mourning the fact that we serve a completely omnibenevolent and good God who has blessed us with every blessing and we chose to spit in his face and turn from him and I am we are mourning the fact that God is good yet this world is broken and that's our fault we mourn original sin we mourn the entire fallen nature of the earth we are frustrated with it So first, I think from the Christian perspective, um, if we are going to follow Chesterton's line of thought, that your idealism is only a hobby until you can admit that what's wrong with the world starts with you. If, if the judgment starts in the house of God, then we first begin with mourning our own personal sin, our own personal involvement in the brokenness of the world. And this flows really nicely with our discussion last week about the nature of human depravity and personal shortcomings. But I wanted to remind you, I wanted to bring you to 1 Corinthians, um, where Paul rebukes the Corinthian church rather harshly. Um, he rebukes them, I would say, from chapter 1 all the way through, um, for the most part. Paul rebukes the Corinthian church. And then in chapter uh, in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, he says this. He says, now I rejoice, not because you were made sorrowful. So he's talking about the fact that he rebuked them really harshly. Not because I made you sorrowful, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you felt the sorrow that God had intended. Now listen to Paul's words, that there is a time and a place in your life where there is a a sorrow that you should feel, that you should embrace, that God intended for you to feel and embrace. There is a godly sorrow that you are intended to encounter. Not because you were made sorrowful, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you felt the sorrow that God had intended. And so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. 
And so we are not talking about a worldly rolling in, moping about the fact that you've messed up in your past. Look, every person, you can look me in the eye, every person in this room has messed up in the past. So we're not talking about a spiritual wallowing. But we are talking about a spiritual sense of responsibility that you acknowledge that you have messed up and that you continue to mess up, that you're willing to own your faults, that you're willing to own the fact that from time to time you offend people, from a time to time you are insensitive. You're willing to own the fact that when Jesus was put on the cross of Calvary, it had something to do with you. Paul says that he doesn't love rebuking the church, but there's fruit that comes from their godly sorrow. There is a sorrow that leads to repentance. There's a sorrow that is quite literally the realization of you waking up to and realizing the scales coming off your eyes and the, the kind of, the kind of covering being ripped off your heart. And you acknowledge the fact that you are not perfect, that you are not flawless. That our society, we just want to talk about our nation, is flawed. And we have a part to play in that, even as Christians. You realize in godly sorrow, not that you're ever really unaware, but you become fully aware. Your conscience becomes fully alert to the fact that you have offended God. What is godly sorrow? How have we embraced it or have we embraced it? So my question to you is, have you sat in the Lord's presence with an honest enough heart to hear his opinion on the matters of your life? When you have a little tiff with a family member or someone in the church, have you sat before God long enough and quiet enough to allow God to prick you, to cut you, to convict you? Are you sensitive enough to the voice of the Holy Spirit that you're willing to turn when you sense his displeasure? Or are you bullheaded and you just march on in life assuming that you're always right? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, who hear that convicting voice and who grieve for the fact that they've offended God. And a, a godly grieving that leads to true repentance. Do you read the scripture against yourself? Have you allowed the scripture to poke and prod? Has it cut you lately? I think that that kind of cutting when the text pierces my inner man. When I'm reading, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm just kind of rolling through it, and I realize with a very sober realization that this is spoken to me, and that these words are about me, and that I have not owned up to this this standard, to this godliness that God... That, that kind of sorrow that produces repentance. Some nights I put on Lennon Ravenhill from the late 80s and just let him cut at me for a while. And this should draw to mind, when, when you hear this, you should run to all those weeping and sackcloth and ashes texts of the Old Testament. You should think of Jonah rebuking Nineveh and the king of Nineveh repenting and sackcloth calling a fast and saying, no, we're wrong. No, we're not right in the way we live. We've offended this God and we need to repent. It should draw your mind to all those places. And so do you mourn over your personal sin? Are you grieved? 
The sin of yesterday, repent. The sin of yesterday is under the blood of Jesus. And that's why Paul says without, that there's godly sorrow that leads to repentance and that you leave a guilty conscience. You can leave a guilty conscience under the blood of Jesus. And you should leave a guilty conscience. The Christian should not live bound with fear and fretting about what happened yesterday. But the Christian should repent and change and come under that blood. Allow that blood and that work to really seep into my inner man and change the way that I live my life. You should have a guilty conscience if you've confessed sin and never repented of it. But we change, we move. So I'm not saying that you live under guilty conscience or even live in a state of dwelling on your mistakes, but you're honest. But the Christian is honest. When the Christian enters into political discourse, when the Christian sits down with a group of people over coffee and we start to talk about big issues, what's wrong, the Christian never takes the pious seat and starts pointing fingers. But the Christian's willing to be honest and to own the fact that I have messed up and that I don't always see straight. That I, Paul says, we look through a glass dimly. I don't have perfect. Inside. I'm not claiming to be the like this kind of elitist. I make mistakes. We have honest discourse, honest interaction that's responsible and willing to own up to our own mistakes, but that honesty leads to honest repentance. But my question is just simply this is your heart hard today? Have you let your heart get hard today? Or do you hear his voice? Is there sin in your life that you're completely aware of, but you just keep pushing in the back of your head, not allowing God to speak to it? Or do you really get low before him? Is he really your Lord? Does he have the right? Does God have the right to poke into your personal life? And then do you think rightly of yourself? Do you have an honest opinion or an arrogance? Are you unwilling to admit that you too have lived in rebellion? That you too have made mistakes? That you too have gone down roads that you wish you wouldn't have gone down? That changes the way that you interact with the lost when you're willing to admit that there was a time when I too did not have it together. That changes your interaction. Or have you forgotten? Do you remember what the cross was about? Can you say with Chesterton today, I am the problem? The problem starts with me. But to focus only on personal sin, in my opinion, is far too narrow of a a view theologically. I think that's an approach to the text that, that, that yes, draws from it and sucks from it, but that doesn't really allow it to speak to its full theological context. Um, I think the full breadth of what we're talking about is the fact that Jesus is casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's bringing people to a right relationship with God. He is rebuking the Pharisee. He is condemning a fleshly outward religion and calling people to real inner purity. He is bringing a kingdom, a new perfect dominion. And so to to leave to leave mourning just at mourning my personal sin and not mourn the fact that there are demonically oppressed people in our community. To not mourn the fact that there are people who struggle with sickness every day and a sickness that God did not design. The disease that ravages our community, it's not God designed. Mourn the fact that we left Eden. Mourn the fact that we continually reject God from our schools, from our courthouses, from our communities. We've, we've denounced God and then we complain that we live godless. We live without God's blessing. Do you mourn the fact that this world is not all that it should be? We mourn over sickness, disease. 
We should mourn over the fact that fatherless homes continue to flood our nation. We mourn over the drug epidemic and the way it's torn through our families. We mourn over the throwing away of the unborn. We mourn uh, where cities are devastated by storms. We mourn over the hearts of our loved ones who've walked unaware of the fact that they are loved, tremendously loved by God. I mourn the fact that I have family members who live as if they have no purpose, not realizing that God knit them together in their mother's womb. Every day he plant, he, he wants to save them and he's prepared a good work for them, but they live purposeless. I'm more, there's a mourning there. What does it mean to mourn? What characteristic is Jesus commending here? So the first thing I've, I've kind of tried to analyze this. What is mourning? What does it mean to mourn? The Greek word used here primarily is used of when one loses a loved one, but clearly that's not quite what Jesus is communicating. But what are the attributes that you have to carry to really mourn? The first thing is to really mourn for where our society is. You have to care. As a church, you are not allowed to set up a little tent, a little corner, which we will live in all alone and we'll protect and shelter ourselves from the outside world and we'll just take care of our own and we'll prop ourselves up and be elitist and we'll, we'll care about us. No, you're not allowed to do that. The church, that's not what the church does. The church cares for the community, the church is engaged. It's often said that the church is the only institution in the earth that exists for people who are not inside the institution. The church historically has run to floods. We've ran to natural disasters. Why are, why are all the hospitals in America like the Southern Baptist Hospital or the Methodist Hospital? What does the church have to do with hospitals? Why? Because the church historically has cared has engaged. Jesus, by saying, I bless those who mourn, those who mourn will experience the fullness. What he's saying is that my people will be a mourning people because my people will care. They will be engaged. They will, they, yes, they are set apart from the world, but they are set apart from the world for the sake of transforming the world. And so how do we feel when our society rejects God? We feel frustrated because we want them to accept God. How do we feel when the, and I'm not, it's, it's easy for Christians to bang on, bang up on abortion. I'm not trying to, if you've had an abortion in this room, statistics say you probably have. There's grace for you. There's love for you. Um, but scripturally we acknowledge that abortion is wrong. How do you feel when millions of babies are literally thrown in the trash can? How does that make you feel? Or are you emotionally disengaged? Do you sit, do you you propagate this evangelical kind of persona that evangelicals only care for their own? That they're only worried about their kids going to college education and their kids having a nice life? Or do you with Jesus mourn, man? Are you inwardly frustrated? I'm not saying that you should change everything. I'm not saying that you can change anything. I'm asking how you feel about it. Do you have any feelings at all? And this is a larger discussion about the heart of God. Does your heart break when God's heart breaks? We've, it's a common thing to say in charismatic churches. We say this thing a lot. We say, God's always in a good mood. And I think we need to theologically think through that statement a little bit. Because what we're really trying to say is that God always loves his children. And he's always, he always welcomes and accepts his children. That's a beautiful statement. But God is not in a good mood when his children Let's just read the prophets. When his children act religious but don't care for the oppressed. Let's just read Amos' words. 
He's saying, keep, take your fast somewhere else. Don't come to me with your religious fast and not care about the fact that there are poor people hungry in your community. That's what Amos is saying. Is God in a good mood there? Well, number one, God's not moody. God doesn't have mood swings. That's not, we don't mean that. Um, but, but, but I want to say is that what mourning is about is embracing the heart of God on matters. Feeling what he feels. Allowing your heart to break where God's heart breaks. God's so grieved by sin. He's so frustrated with the fact that we have rejected his goodness. That God sends his own son who comes, who's, who's, who is perfection, the, the king, the prince of heaven. God sends his own son to live in a disgusting earth from God's perspective, to live amongst the sinful. God is not this, um, I have to be separate thing, but God engages our sinful humanity. He's so frustrated with the brokenness of the earth that he would watch his own son be crucified on Calvary to redeem it. He's so frustrated with fallen humanity that he would, he would endure his own son's suffering. One of the, if not, some historians say the worst death in all of human history. He watched, he's so frustrated. Are you frustrated with the fallenness of the earth? Are you frustrated that young men grow up fatherless in our communities? Are you frustrated that they live their lives trying to prove something to somebody, never realizing that God created them with intentionality and they've got nothing to prove? Does that frustrate you? Does that move you at all? Do you share God's concerns or are you disengaged and unconcerned? Have you really mourned? The second thing is that... that to really mourn, you first, you have to care, you have to somewhat care. And, and mourning, I've, I've come to understand that mourning is actually, um, dependent upon love. That, that when a, when a mother, when, uh, I know many of you guys have had miscarriages, when Haley and I had, we got pregnant like two months after we got married because we were just so ready to have kids, God bless us. Um, and I remember we, we go to the ultrasound to see that baby's, heartbeat and there's no heartbeat there and they're like you know i don't know we were 22 and so i don't think i ever knew anything about miscarriages never even thought there was a chance and i remember the the brokenness and the the hurt the for lack of better words like the mourning that we went through for weeks like completely shot put on our heels like confused and dazed and the grief but why do why do we feel grief because we loved this thing because we really cared about this baby. Because why do you why do you mourn when a loved one passes? Because you actually love them and and care for them. The mourning mourning is a is a is an after effect of real agape selfless love. Mourning is an after effect of love. And so to really mourn for our community or to mourn for a community that's just been devastated by a hurricane, you have to first love that community with an agape spirit-filled and spirit-imparted love. And so if you have no mourning, it's because you have no love because those two things are interrelated, interconnected. So Jesus says that my church, they will be a people of love. And because they are a people of love, there will be days that they mourn. My church will be a loving people, therefore they will be a mourning people. I wanted to read you this text from Romans chapter 9. Um, remember Romans is Paul's like most theological discourse. It's systematic. It's... Um, impersonal, if you could say that. Paul didn't know, he'd never been to Rome yet, so he wasn't writing to friends. And so it's a little more um, 
professional is not the right word, but it's like a letter you would write to someone you don't know. It's not very personal. It's very systematic and theological. It reads more like a discourse. But in chapter 9, verse 1, he says something that's really interesting. So this is Romans 9, 1 through 3. He says, I speak the truth in Christ, and I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For what? What is he talking about? He's talking about Israel, the fact that Israel has rejected the gospel. He's saying that, that I would wish that myself, that I would wish that I could be separated from Christ and be accursed, that these people would receive the blessing of Jesus. I am so heartbroken over their state that I have a constant, unceasing anguish. Now, hear the paradox of Paul, who in Galatians chapter 5 tells us that the, one of the fruit of the spirits is joy, and a mark of the Christian life is joy that's in part to me from the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, I get up every morning and I live and walk in the perfect joy of the Holy Ghost. But then Paul says, in another sense, I have unceasing anguish, constant sorrow, a daily frustration for the fact that there are people who die every day without knowing the beauty of this Jesus that I serve. Catch his paradigm? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. There's a godly mourning that, that is a result of godly love. And so, you know, to talk about Leonard Ravenhill for a minute, he would say that if your life knows no tears, he wouldn't call you a spiritual giant. He would call you hard-hearted. That the prayer life of the believer ought to know tears every now and then. That you ought to love your family members so much. And I know you've got a family member who's walked away from God. That love for them ought to ought to push you to a state of mourning and real prayer and intercession for your love for for your family members and if you don't have that kind of mourning grieving intercession then it might be because you're not walking in the fullness of love love feels love hurts we've had so many friends and family members who've had uh, family loved ones pass over the last month. I've had like, feels like I've had 15 conversations about the passing of loved ones. And it kind of has been a theme. The reason you hurt, you're hurting well is because you've loved well. And the reason that you're really mourning and grieving the loss of this loved one is because you actually love them with selfless love. And that's something to celebrate. That you, as a completely selfish and uptight and arrogant person, actually got outside of yourself and loved someone else so much so that when they passed, you hurt, you actually mourn and grieve. That's something to celebrate. That you left selfishness and entered into selflessness. Mourning is a result of real love, of real care, of real cherishing someone other than you. If that's not what Jesus came for, I don't know what he did. And so Jesus is engaging the marginalized. He's engaging the ostracized. Remember Jesus in John chapter 8 when they bring to him a woman caught in adultery. And remember, he steps in to this engagement with the Pharisees. And he's willing to, in some sense, defend this woman, to value this woman. He grieves. He mourns when Lazarus dies. Remember, he weeps at the... Why is Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus? Because he actually loves and feels. Come into it. 
If I could say anything from the Spirit of God this morning as I've read the text, what I feel like this text and the Holy Spirit is communicating is come into it. Come into a deeper place of love. If you've, if you don't feel, if you've never hurt, then you're, you're not walking in the fullness of love. Come into it. And the last thing about mourning that, that I've come to the conclusion that must exist for you to really mourn is, um, a higher standard or a hope for better. Why do I mourn at the loss of a child? Because I hoped for something better. I'm mourning because I know God and I know what he created. And this isn't it. What God intended was not this. And why do we mourn when we lose a loved one too soon? Because we wanted more years to come. We believed for more. Why do we mourn when people are sick? I, I mourn my own lack of spiritual gifting and anointing to minister healing at times. I mourn sickness because I expect more. I know that there's more. I know this isn't what God created and who he created us to be. I know that there's better to come. I know that what we live in today is not the fullness of the coming kingdom which Jesus died to inaugurate. I know Know that the kingdom that's coming is more and it's better. And when we rub against it and when we experience a young kid who's sick and paralyzed, I mourn that because there's more. I have a higher standard for more. There's the only way to really mourn is to embrace God's standard. Why do we mourn broken families? Why don't we just say, oh, that's the way that families go? Because there's a higher standard that we've clung to. Why do we care that our, why do we care that our cities are filled with fatherless homes? Because there's a higher standard. We know what God has called us to. We are aimed at pointing towards a higher standard and when it's not met, we feel it. The godly, the, the mourning of Matthew chapter 5, 4, they feel frustration when a child experiences poverty because they're awaiting the final day when poverty will be eliminated and eradicated. But not only are they, we sang it today, not only are they awaiting the final day when poverty will be eradicated, but they also acknowledge that with their own hands, they have the ability to come to wealth. And, and maybe I can't eradicate poverty. I can't. Jesus will. But I can relieve someone. The, 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 they're frustrated when disease robs life of a member of their community because they believe God's goodness intended more for us. Mourn over our own lack of power. We mourn over our own hard-heartedness. We mourn over our own unwillingness to engage our communities. I think that every now and then, uh, hear me carefully because I don't want you to twist what I'm saying. I don't think that you should ever embrace a posture that's ill towards God's church. You should, the, the, the church is the bride of Christ who Jesus loves. But there are times when I feel a mourning of we could have done something, where we could do more. There is a godly mourning for even the state of the church at times. And the reformers, the Protestant reformers, they taught this doctrine, which is a Latin word which I can't say or recall in the moment. But essentially what the doctrine was is that the church should always be reforming. It should always be 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 molding and changing that the church should look at its community and go wait there are hungry people here that we could have fed and so the church changes the way that it operates to meet the need but but also that the church understands that we have a tendency to get stale revelation chapter 2 the church of laodicea had become lukewarm there's a tendency in you and and be real be honest enough to admit this there's a tendency in you to become stale and churches, we have a tendency as churches to become stale. 
And that should drive us to a place of real mourning, of real frustration. That should cause us to say, wait, we need to do some praying, man. We need to get some prayer meetings moving in this place. We need to, we need to press in. That should, every now and then, a church should mourn for its own staleness. And Jesus says, these are the ones who will be comforted. Those who mourn. In one sense, we are comforted by the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's called the paraclete, which means the comforter, the counselor. In one sense, we fully have the Holy Spirit today. And I am comforted every day as I get up and face my walk in life. But in another sense, in in a revelation sense, Jesus says that he will wipe every tear from my eye. That I will be fully comforted at the coming. And so... In one sense, the morning are comforted today by the infilling of the Holy Ghost. But in another sense, the morning will be comforted on the last day when Jesus sets all things right. On the last day when we will have no children with diseases that paralyze them. On the last day where every oppressor will be brought to justice. On the last day where the world will be eradicated of cancer and AIDS. On the last day when the beauty, the glory, and the majesty of Jesus will fill the heavens and the earth. It's those, those kind of mourning people who will fully be comforted. So in conclusion, let me just say a few things. The Christianity is marked with joy. It, it is a joyous religion. We ought to be festive in our faith. We, I, the joy in my life is driven from the fact that I am honest about, about my own personal state. I understand that I'm broken, but I live as if I am perfectly Loved and, and, and declared perfectly righteous because of Jesus. There is a joy in that. But remember that it's the tears of Gethsemane that led to the joy of the garden tomb. I'm not saying that you should be led by grief or that you should mourn in a way that's unhealthy, but I am saying that you should engage culture enough. You should engage our city. We should engage this community enough that we hurt at the fatherlessness. That we have an emotional response when people come to us hungry and, and we, sh- we should be frustrated at the amount of vast resources that this community has of all communities and the, the fact that there are still people struggling. That should cause us to mourn and grieve and to kind of think, dream, how can we relieve some of this pressure? I can say this with gospel authority. You are not allowed to live selfish. It's not here. Nowhere here does the Christian live selfishly. It's not in our nature. It's not who we are. It's not the image of God. Not even close. Your calling has to do with the gospel. Your calling has to do with declaring the righteousness of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. But it's also, that again, that can become a, a narrow line for evangelicals theologically, where the gospel and proclaiming justification by faith is central to our faith. It is prominent in our faith. It is forthright in our faith. But it's not the entirety of the gospel narrative. The gospel narrative is this coming kingdom which will restore all things. And so Jesus is concerned on the forefront with justification, with you being declared righteousness because of his blood. But why is he casting out devils? Why is he healing the sick? Why is he telling his church that on the last day that they'll be affirmed because when he they, they they came and visited those in prison and they fed the sick and the church will say no we never fed you in prison 
never fed you, never visited you in prison. And Jesus will say, no, to the least of these, you've done it as sin to me. What does that have to do with justification by faith? Nothing perfectly. It's the fuller picture of the gospel narrative, which is this coming kingdom. So as I close, I just want to read to you what, from Isaiah 61, and this is the, this is the time where Jesus is in his uh, hometown and they ask him to read from the scroll of Isaiah and it opens to Isaiah 61 and he reads this text and then says, it's fulfilled in me. Um, this is what it says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all those who mourn. Are you willing to like fully embody the message of Jesus? That's my question this morning. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.